Coming up on this week's Straight Talk and Mental Health Podcast, we are talking to B. Bauman around her experience of schizophrenia. When I was born, my mother had a nervous breakdown. And so that meant I went straight into foster, uh, foster care. Somewhere in my 30s, I actually had my own nervous breakdown and I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, you know, and then slowly I thought people were chasing me. And so I would come home and say to my, to my partner, you know, there's people out there trying to get me and he didn't know what I was talking about. One fall, the people had built like a great fire outside, you know, and I had never seen these big fires that you build mm. and they came knocking on our door oh, and and with these torches <laughs> and fire and well, like, as an african american that would have been something else <laughs> You are very welcome to the Straight Talking Mental Health Podcast. The podcast is so simple, I've said everything that it's about. Straight Talking Mental Health. This week on the podcast, we are talking to B. Bowman. You're going to, you're going to hear me do the joke, so I'm just going to get it out of the way of the B. Bowman. That's coming up later on. She is here to tell her story about schizophrenia. Uh, not a not a subject we've covered in the past. We've had we've touched on a little bits and pieces. Um, B's story is a little bit different in that she, as an African American woman, is living in Germany when she had a schizoid break. You're living in a whole other country. You're living in a whole other culture. She tells us what that was like to be hospitalized. She tells us about her experience of being in foster care for the first twelve years of her life, not knowing that her foster parents weren't her actual birth parents, and then her experience of growing up in a strong Christian Black Baptist community and being taken by her birth mother, who at that point was a total stranger and brought to live in the inner city and everything that that brought, uh, along with being the youngest of eight and being put into the the pack, as she described it. So that's coming up later on in the show. Before all of that, my name is Alan Clark. I'm a psychotherapist with a degree in counseling and psychotherapy and a master's in child and adolescent psychotherapy. This is not a psychotherapy podcast, although we do talk about mental health. We do actually talk about uh, some lighthearted stuff as we go along with that. And myself and B do that later on because uh, she in later life got into stand-up comedy. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know you know that's uh, one of my other loves is stand-up comedy. So we talk about that and the importance of humor around mental health. So that's what we're here to do. If you haven't already, you can check us out on, I keep saying check us out, and that's a force of habit from doing uh, 117 other episodes of the podcast. I think this is episode 118. You can check me out on social media. (laughs) Uh, That is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. TikTok, TikTok, that'll show you how much I use it. And all of the usernames across all the social media channels are at STMHPodcast. If you haven't already, if you're watching, Thank you very much. Thank you very much for checking us out on the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel handle is also at STMH Podcast. If you haven't already, please do give a subscribe, uh, hit the notification bell, get, you know, you know all of that stuff, guys, you know, you know, YouTubers, comment down below, hit that, smash that like button, all of that sort of stuff. That's going to help the algorithm. That's going to help more people see the posts, etc., etc. So, you know, that's, that's the plug out of the way. If you haven't checked out the website, you can do that. You can sign up to the newsletter. That way you will get all of the new episodes directly into your inbox. Episodes go live at midnight on Tuesdays. 
The website is stmhpodcast.com. And if you want to email us, if you want to come on and tell your story, if you've got some feedback around any of our uh, episodes, if you'd like to come on and be a guest, if you've got, if you're a publicist, if you've got an author you want to come on or a speaker, by all means, you can email also hello at stmhpodcast.com. That's the social media plug out of the way. I've got to get to some correspondence. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to, to retweet, to like, comment, and share. That means a lot. We ask you to do that. I ask you to do that because that helps other people see it. Other people see it, they go, oh, this must be pretty good if they're sharing it. And that way we can reach more people and help them to straight talk their mental health. So speaking of the YouTube, as we did last, big shout out to Enda. Enda, thank you so much. Enda always has a comment on the YouTube channels. Uh, Enda had a comment around our episode last week, or not last week, our last episode, which was two weeks ago, on male depression with Neil Kelders. Uh, Enda specifically uh, enjoyed that one. Happy New Year, Alan. This was one of the best episodes of the sh- of the show yet, in my opinion. Keeping it real. And I am a former rapper. I am a product of '90s hip hop, where the motto for '90s hip was "Keep it real." We keep it real, and that's what we're here to do. That's what myself and Peter always did as two former rappers, my former co-host and founder of the podcast. So that's exactly what we're here to do. We're here to keep it real. We don't sugarcoat it. We don't do anything like that. Everyone that comes on tells their story. You know, they're telling their story in an effort to help as many people as they can, the same way as I talk about my experiences to help as many people as I can. So I'm glad you glad you like the episode, Enda. Uh, I'd also mentioned the Enda that we have covered depression in one of our early episodes. I think it was episode 11. So we're going way, way back to some of the earlier episodes uh, for our other episode on depression. That's an audio only one. So you will find that on Spotify or iTunes or the website, www.stmispodcast.com, uh, or any, any of the major podcast providers. That's where you're going to get our, our former episode on depression. And also, we've had guests come on and share their experience of depression, but depression on that episode was a standalone topic. So thanks very much, Enda. Really appreciate you reaching out. Uh, always has uh, has something to say on the YouTube channel, and that's greatly appreciated. Let's go on over to the, to the Twitter. So a big shout-out to the show. So that's Joe. Joe and Irish, Joseph. Uh, Joe always always has a retweet and tags us and stuff like that. So really appreciate that show. And an old an old correspondence had had hit up on last episode as well. And a big shout out to Michael. Michael, I, I remember I remember your first correspondence. Um, uh, going way back. So he's been a fan since day one. Sent you guys an email back in 21 when I was you and Peter. I was leaving the military at the time to study mental health nursing in second year now and still loving your podcast. Michael, thank you very much for that. Michael had given a comment on, on Twitter. I uh, once heard on ST, at STMS podcast that there's no hierarchy of suffering. Really resonated with me. So that's something I had said on a previous episode and, and Michael was good enough to, to comment that at someone else on Twitter and he's back in contact again so we've gone from from where Michael was to now in second year hope it's going well for you Michael um, it's, a, it's a tough old challenge but fair play to you for, for doing that shout out to Derek as well Derek great job on this podcast he retweeted um, last week's episode or last episode around um, Neil had said he had thought of suicide not once a day but multiple times a day uh, and Derek appreciated that gave a retweet let's, let's get some of the correspondence on the Facebook page um, thank you Orla Orla always has a comment really appreciate it Shauna Shauna I love you you know I do I left you hanging so when we put up the preview the preview episode for Neil's episode why did those two weeks over Christmas feel like months? Glad to have you back in 2023. Happy New Year. 
happy new year to you, Shauna, and a happy new year to everyone. I was like, Jesus, no pressure being back with this one then, Shauna. Eh? Just missed you, all right? Missed you too, Shauna. And thank you to everyone for commenting. Thank you to everyone for likes and comments. Um, thank you to our former guest, Rachel. Rachel also uh, enjoyed the last episode. Speaking of last episode, we did talk to, to Neil Kelders, author. Uh, he's just published his own book, a speaker, and a huge mental health advocate because he's a person that had his mental health struggles around male depression and his suicidal thoughts, as I said, not once a day, but multiple times a day. And very grateful to Neil to come on and tell his story. If you haven't already, if you're on the YouTube, ding, there, there's your link up there. Um, do check it out. It's a, it's a very enjoyable episode. A couple of things that stood out for me from um, Neil's episode, uh, one of them being Neil's kind of reluctance to to admit his his dad left when he was ten, if I remember correctly, and his his reluctance to acknowledge that that affected him, and of course it was as a as a young child. People people often think you know going into therapy of well what's what's the point in talking about the past you know all that shit's happened you know there's no point dragging all that up just to feel shit again. But the issue with that is, you know, we need to feel something to heal something. And when this, these childhood experiences that typically become unconscious reactions, and Neil Neil also spoke as well about um, his history of romantic relationships and how he'd, he'd kind of keep people at, at arm's length, that, that part of him that wants it to connect with the, I suppose, the fear of vulnerability and intimacy, which always kept people at a distance, whether that was him, you know, emotionally keeping people at a distance or physically, you know, and being in long distance relationships. This stuff affects us, and when it's unconscious, it's a reaction. So when you know Neil previously would have probably gone into those experiences, you know, with an unconscious, not knowing these things, but unconsciously acting them out as he always does. And the benefit from talking about her past, the benefit from talking about her childhood experiences, is we bring awareness to them. And when we can bring awareness to something, it creates choice. And that can be the choice of being able to acknowledge, oh, okay, actually, I can see what I'm doing here again. I'm scared to let this person in. I'm reluctant to, to get closer to this person because I don't want to get hurt. And our brain, based on experience, makes predictions. So if you've had that experience of being really hurt in the past, particularly in, in, in childhood, and you know really turning that up to maximum of losing a, a parent or a parent leaving, then the brain's going to go, oh, you remember that 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 time you were really close to someone? Well, uh, let's fucking avoid that again because that sucked uh, when that person went out of her life. And this is this is the unconscious and the power of it. It's, it's reactionary. It's instant. We don't have any control over it. But when we start to become aware of it, when we talk about it in therapy or in, when we're in our counseling, that then becomes a different entity. So now it doesn't have control over us. Now we have the awareness. And awareness creates choice. So we can identify it and go, oh, shit, actually, I'm doing that again. And usually what happens is we catch it after the fact. So we find out maybe we've been doing it. And then we go, oh, oh, I'm doing that again. But what happens, the more we talk about it, the gap closes. So there's a catalyst. And then down the road, we, we, we notice we've done it. But the gap between it happening and when we catch it narrows to the point of, you know, we can see, oh, I'm doing it at the time. I've done it again. So that's the that's that's the benefit of talking about our past, healing it, feeling it, and being able to to move on to it. So huge thank you to Neil for coming on and sharing his experience last week. Check out his book. The the, the blog is all there in, in last week's episode. 
he didn't even remember the name of it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm struggling to remember the name of it off the top of my head. So a big thank you. Check out last week's episode. And a big thank you to everyone for your correspondence. Please do get in contact. Let me know who I'm talking out there. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let me know. If you've enjoyed previous episodes, please let me know. Love hearing from you. So I think that's all we can say about last week's episode, folks. We've plugged the social media. We've plugged last week's episode. I think there's nothing else to it, but to pop on over to B. So this week on the podcast, we are crossing over to Germany, I believe. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I can't. I can't withhold it any longer. As soon as soon as the knee, as soon as the name came up, I was straight away in my head going B bow man, bow. I, I just had to get. I had to get that out of my system. B. I'm really sorry. As soon as I seen it, I was. I was like, oh, I, I just need to get this out of the way. It's done. That was not Ferris Bueller's song. That is the name of our guest this week, who was here to share her story, and that is B. Bauman, all the way Ta-da. from all the way from what part? Well, I'm in a small town outside of Germany, but I call it Strudelbach. Uh, okay. To protect the innocent. <laughs> <laughs> B, I'm going to go out on a limb here. You know, I'm just going. I'm just going to take a chance, and I'm and I'm going to say, that's not a German accent. Correct. Correct. <laughs> oh, I am. That's my keen yeah. keen senses there. Can, yeah. I can tell already that I can't get anything past. <laughs> no, you're not getting that. It's like it's just blah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I'm originally from Indianapolis, Indiana, and I met my my husband, who's German, Mm. in Boston. And that's where I I had been living after college um, with um, my ex-husband to bring up the kids so yeah. okay I'm, yeah. I'm wondering what that i'm wondering what that mix is like uh we've had uh, we had kate o'malley on before who was half irish half german and you know with, with a mix like that you're going to get like it'll be done properly tomorrow what's what's the what's the mix of german and 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 your well, african american <laughs> well actually our kids are not together he actually helped me raise my kids mm. and mm. It's, it's it, the, the mix, even in a, um, patchwork family is that you have those who, um, are very, Germans tend to be very regulated and believe in rules. Mm-hmm. And myself, I, I can only speak for myself as an African American, mm. you know, from, um, <laughs> uh, downtown Indiana. The gloves are off. You know, everything is basically a suggestion and you just go with it. <laughs> All right. Before we get into anything, B, as, as we have discussed, uh, we kick things off with, with our smiles and riles. You know, we have we share our own smiles and riles between us here. And that's for our first time listeners. So that's something that's made a smile during the week. That's something that's got us riled. Uh, we're here to promote mental health. Life isn't always good. Life isn't always bad. So we take the light with the shade, the yin to the yang. Uh, with our with our smiles and royals, as the guest be, we'll let you kick off with with your choice. Would you like to go smile or royal to start off with? Smiles. Smile. Go, woman. Let's let's have it. Have at it, woman. Okay. I, it's really a small one, but for me, it had such an impact. I was driving with a friend, and it had been raining in Germany, and there was a rainbow. In the sky, and, and it's just the idea that we still have rainbows. You know, it just hit me that mm-hmm. that is that is really a constant when you hear all of this about global warming and you know this, that, and the other um, 
global catastrophe. It's just nice to know that we still have rainbows. And yes, I believe in unicorns. <laughs> if you're religious, for any of our religious people out there, that is a covenant at God. As long as you see the, a rainbow, he's <laughs> not going to uh, flood the earth as he once did. Um, if you're a scientist, you believe in, in light refracting through water. If you're if you're B, you just take it. As, this is this is a good thing. This is something that's it's, it's enough to enough to bring a smile to your face. Exactly. Yeah, because I'm getting older and there's so many things that I think have fallen by the wayside or that I no longer notice or see as magical. And I can't say that about rainbows. I still mm. see rainbows as like you said, there there's science to it, mm. there's you know, spirituality to it, but for me it's just a great sign from the yeah. universe. It's, um, I suppose it's a kind of sign for ourselves as adults that, you know, we get cynical or that wonderment is taken away from us. You know, that wonderment and curiosity as children that we have that was like, oh my God, what is that? And, you know, every every child, oh, look at a rainbow. It's like, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, and, and we lose that. We lose that along the way, unfortunately. But mm -hmm. a healthy reminder that, you know, there's, there's wonderment and happiness to be found in, the small places if we look for it mm -hmm. exactly and that's what i try to do is to you know have to to have that sense of wonder about life all the time because we are here for only a short mm. matter of time and so um enjoy it enjoy the magic yeah okay uh let's see you want to go royal do you want to hit us with your royal oh okay I'm it's I'm funny because people... Oh, which way do you want to go? Do you want to go smile, smile, rile, rile? Which which As the guest, you pick. Okay, I'll try to do a rile. It's funny because people always say, oh, we can't tell that you're riled. <laughs> okay. So, so I, it doesn't seem obvious. But what has been riling me a lot is this um, bureaucracy that sets down rules. Let's, you know, I... I'm all for vaccinations. I'm all for protecting people. Mm. But, you know, as the vaccine, uh, as the masks have, the masks have come off, mm. uh, there's still pockets where they expect you to wear a mask. And unfortunately in Germany, and unfortunately sometimes you don't know that that's what they're going to want, want is a mask. Okay. And so there can, it's just, you know, you need a mask on the train, but you don't need a mask to stand on the, you know, on the um, walkway to the train. You don't need a mask in the train station, but you need it on the train. But you don't need it if you're drinking something. Mm. So it's just, for me, the logic of that, it just has no sort of internal logic. It's just something we do, it seems like. Yeah. When, when there's... Yeah, when you when you can't think of anything to do, you make a rule. That's what it seems like to me. You're in Germany, B. You know, it's, yeah. kind, it's kind of their thing. If we're going to stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> I know, not to stereotype. Not to stereotype, yeah. but, you know, they're kind of known for us. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think over here we, we have, I think it's fairly clear cut in terms of wearing a mask. It's just in any kind of medical setting. Um, outside, oh, okay. outside of mm -hmm. that, it's it's kind of optional. We we used to have that. We had that, that those same restrictions of unless you were eating or drinking, 
you know, um, on all public transport, that kind of stuff. But it's it's now basically just just medical. So even if I go for physio uh, physiotherapy, I still have to wear I still have to wear a mask in there, or you go to the doctor's office or stuff like that. But outside of that, everything else is. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, me me too. And it was funny. I was at the um, um, apothecary. What is that? Uh, um, Pharmacy. I was at the pharmacy and uh, this couple comes in and (laughs) they start like they're coughing and (laughs) looks like they're, you know, stuffed up. And I'm like, where's my mask? Where's my mask? (laughs) Then I wanted it. But um, but again, they had been probably coughing since they walked in the door. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but I didn't get sick. So good. Yeah. Glad to, glad to hear. It. So that's, that's your royal, the kind of, the, the unknown around it, the, the kind of ambiguity around, yeah, the bureaucracy. around the yeah, yeah. When it seems like there's bureaucracy that no one will follow completely, but they want to act like it's really set in stone, you know, yeah. the rules yeah. and that they mean that they mean something. But like I said, I'm an inner city girl from Indiana. So <laughs> rules mean very Fuck little that shit. to me. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll go I'll go I'll go smile. Well I'll go smile and then I'll segue into my royal because basically they're the same thing. Okay. So, so my smile this week is um I started playing golf a few years ago. Not a very good golfer. Um I've had spinal surgery, I've had herniated discs on my back. Uh so I haven't got to play mm. a lot of golf. But I started back playing golf this week, and uh, it's lovely. It's it's uh, as as a kid that grew up in a council estate. You know, I suppose this is, uh, the equivalent would be the projects. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, playing golf. <laughs> That's not something I did as a kid, but uh, yeah. it, it's a very enjoyable sport. Well, and it was nice for me. It's just it's a very kind of social. You know, I just out with my friends. We just happen to be walking around a field, hitting hitting a white ball having the chats and mm-hmm. having a bit of crack, uh, as, as we say in Ireland. So back playing golf, that's that's my smile. And actually, I've just noticed I'm actually wearing golf gear because I met my friends today at the driving range. Uh, so I'm not sponsored by Nike today, unfortunately. I am I'm plugging the mirror <laughs> left, right and centre, but I'm not sponsored, unfortunately. Uh, so that, that's my smile this week, back playing golf. And my royal this week is back playing golf because it's a fucking stupid game b it's a stupid game <laughs> it's it's so frustrating just when you think you got it <laughs> and you go oh that was a great oh. shot oh okay just do that again nah your body doesn't want to do that the next time it's like nah nah <laughs> we, we won't be having that again <laughs> so it's it's an extremely frustrating game i always describe golf as simultaneously the greatest and most frustrating game you can ever play at the same time and you can have an uh-huh. absolutely horrendous round of golf and then you hit your last shot dead straight. And that's what brings you back the next day. <laughs> and all no. of the rest, the other three and a half hours are just totally forgotten about. And it's, it's like it's like your kid, you know, they've, they've, they've just wrecked your head all day. They've been acting up. They've been being cheeky. They've been, you know, just melting your head. And then they give you that little smile or a kiss before bedtime. And you're like, oh, God damn it. All right. I love you. <laughs> See you in the morning. <laughs> so that, that's my equivalent. <laughs> Oh, wow. Golf. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been on the miniature golf range mm. for some reason. I cannot even imagine walking the, what is it? Five, 15 uh, kilometers? Probably about, uh, five, six miles, depending on the course. Gen- yeah. Generally kind of in around five or six miles. You're talking three and a half mm-hmm, hours, four hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. As, yeah, as Winston Churchill yeah. said, golf is the best way to ruin a good walk. 
that's so good. That's funny. So that that's my smiles and royals this week. It's the same one. <laughs> I'm sure any any anyone that plays golf out there is going, yeah, I get it. I get it. I can relate to that. <laughs> you mentioned, as we said, from the accent, B, you're not you're not German, but you did grow up in the States. Tell tell us about that. Tell us about that upbringing for yourself. What that was like for you. Yeah, well, so I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. And when uh, I, when I was born, my mother had a nervous breakdown. And so that meant I went straight into foster, uh, foster care. And I stayed in foster care for 12 years. And she came back one day for me, but I hadn't been sort of prepared that there that I was a foster child so it's basically a made for tv movie you know with mm. Darth Vader you know sort of brought it to his son mm. that's the way my mother brought it to me okay. like you know so I, you, you grew up with the one foster family B was it yes okay. it was just one foster family mm. for 12 years and uh, I had a brother and sister that I I lost contact with but there, it was the three of us and really until my mother, until we started. So my foster mother was about probably 50 when she picked me up from the hospital. So she was getting older. I think that might have been one of the reasons my father, my foster father was um, bedridden by the time I was 12. So that might have been part of the reason. Mm. Plus, my mother had come back she felt healthy she felt like she was ready to care for eight children again because that's how many siblings i have and i'm the baby of the family mm. they're irish so, catholics numbers yeah. that, that, that's yeah, irish, irish catholic, catholic number of family like that's exactly. my, my mother is one of 13 you know eight, eight's a good number like that's <laughs> that's irish catholic yeah. numbers <laughs> Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and I mean, if it, if there had been birth control, I'm sure I would not have been here. Mm. So, uh, whew, I made it in <laughs> right under the wire. <laughs> when, when you were growing up, B, did you know, did you know you were fostered or did you believe those people to be your, your parents or what, what did that look like? I did believe they were my parents because I had no indication. Someone had said to me, asked me, well, didn't, didn't social services come in? Didn't you see a social worker? Okay. You have to remember I was a, a baby. Mm-hmm. And so as I grew up, if there was a false, um, a social worker who came to the house, she didn't really speak to me and no one ever said anything about foster care. I didn't even know foster care existed. Plus, I was in a Christian home. Mm. We went to church at least five nights a week. So I had this real Baptist upbringing. Mm. Uh, We went to the preacher's house for the weekend, me and my brothers and sisters. And so we close knit middle class community that I was raised in. And my, they took my little sister, then I was the middle child. They took my little sister, Frances, out of the house first. There were three of us, me, Frances, and Johnny. And they took Frances first. And Johnny, my brother, started saying to me, you know, we're foster children. But in my mind, I thought, yeah, you're a foster child. 
but not me. Mm. Yeah, and I believed that until my mother actually showed up. And um, then it was maybe a month or and a half, and she had me with her like that. And then it was a whole another upbringing because, like I said, I had been going to church five days a week. I, you know, I was just um, in a secure middle class upbringing. Mm. And so my mother comes, she takes me with the first time I've seen the social worker and never saw her again. But my mother takes me to central Indiana. There's eight of us. I'm the baby of the family. I didn't know any of them because I had never seen any of them before. And it was like being, I'm sorry to say it, but I have said it before. It was like being put in a pack, you know, of, of wild wild creatures mm. and I didn't have that core I didn't have that wiliness mm. or that you know I wasn't street smart mm. by any stretch of them and I am still not street smart I I never got it mm. I never caught on no yeah so well, what was it like then was be to, to you know to, to live in this family to believe these people are your parents and then this woman who you don't know comes in and you get this you get this news what what was that like it it was surreal and because i had been raised to be an obedient child i didn't feel i had the power to question i didn't feel i had the power to um, deny what she wanted because she wanted me i i had no right to say no i don't want to go you know and i and i and my foster mother said nothing. So she gave me no indication that even that there was sort of a tie that we had between us. And I think it was because she was a foster mother mm. and she, she had that role. And so she sort of said, okay, here's your real mother. And she just handed me over, but she, she hadn't prepared me. So it was. It was a shock, and I luckily my mother. What my mother did do that was wonderful. Is she introduced me to so many books? She bought me a stack of you know, uh, which I hadn't had before because my foster mother was very strict mm -hmm. Christian woman, and so I had been raised in this like straight arrow um, home with only Christian music. So I didn't know anything basically about the outside world. And my first introduction to the outside world was these, these, um, fairy tales, Cinderella, you know, the three pigs. She bought like a whole stack. Um, I guess it was the encyclopedia of, of um, fairy tales. Mm. And, and so she introduced me to those and she introduced me to some other books. My mother, she was, very intelligent when i um when i got back to her when i met her she was in college at iupui which is indianapolis university to become a psychotherapist so and she stayed in school she, she was like a career student um but very smart woman very talented in every way she just we didn't connect and we didn't connect partly because I didn't have that edge. I, I didn't have any edges on me. 
And so she took my obedience. She took my um, not talking back to her as a sign that I was sneaky, that I was, you know, somehow deviant. Mm. And so it was, we didn't unfortunately get along. And, and it, I was 12 and up until I left the house that I think I left the house at 15. They made me, um, uh, what did they call it? Uh, a minor, um, where they make, they make you an independent minor. And so they help you get an apartment and you get a little job and you're basically just an independent minor. And so that's what they did to me because she and I couldn't get along. And then, you know, I was hospitalized for a while just for um, psychosis. But this was like PTSD that I had been dealing with mm. in this family. Well, you, you've kind of named it there, but maybe if you could elaborate a little bit more, be of what, what, what impact did that have on you then? So up to 12, you know, fairly straight laced. Christian Baptist family, anyone that's seen the TV, I think we can kind of imagine the kind of upbringing that, that you had. And then, as you say, you're, you're thrown in with the pack. You're, you're one of eight. You're not street smart. You know, you're so obedient to thinking that there's something wrong with you or you're up to something because you're you're so good. And then you don't click with the person who is your birth mother. And then at 15, you're out living on your own. Like, what, what impact does do those first 15 years have before we get to like that piece where it's like, okay, now you're out on your own, but what was the impact of everything that went before that? The impact of everything that went before being raised in a Christian home for 12 years meant that I had, I had a backbone. I mean, I, even though I was very obedient because I thought adults, you know, like children are to be seen and not heard mm. and all of this. But my backbone was my faith, and I believed in good, even though I had a child's understanding of good and evil, and I did. I believed in black and white. Things were good or bad at that point because that's the way I had been raised. And it took a while for me to understand gray, you know, I, because I had not seen gray before. Um, and I, I could communicate. I had a firm education. So I had a firm foundation for school. So I, I wasn't, so when I, so when my mother came and put me in and told me I was part of this pack, um, I still had the grounding of my morals. I still had the grounding of my education. And so I was able to, to, to stay and to, to sort of raise myself the way I thought I was supposed to be going, mm -hmm. even though, so like, let's say, uh, the fact that everyone, basically everyone in my family smoked marijuana, you know, and I did, I tried marijuana too, but for some reason I, I pass out on marijuana. I, for some reason, I just can't handle it. Puff, puff, pass out. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a, a wet sock at a party. Because it's like, let's watch, let's turn, be in a chair and watch her pass out. You know, I, I have no tolerance for, for drugs, which I, I just thank goodness that mm -hmm. that's the case because 
it wasn't like people weren't offering me drugs all the time because they considered that recreational. Mm. You know, they considered that just what we do to belong together. Um, yeah, so I had people offering me crack. I was going to crack houses to get my brother and meeting prostitutes and, and riding around with them. It was just night and day. And I just, but, but that was my, that became my reality. My mother did, however, I, I, I believe she did this for me, felt it was too much for me. And so we moved to Colorado. Um, her and I still did not get along well. And that's where I became an emancipated youth was in Colorado um, around 15. We lived with my, my uh, grandfather there. He was retired military. And, and some of my family, one of my brothers moved to Colorado. We were in Colorado Springs at that point. And, and yeah, so unfortunately, my mother and I never understood one another. She didn't get me and, and I couldn't, um, yeah, and I didn't get her either. And so it was when they emancipated me, basically I had been grown at 12. Like my foster mother raised me. And so I was groaned. I just, you know, I don't did, did know. you keep contact with your foster parents? I didn't. What happened one day, my mother caught me calling my foster mother. And I was like, I don't want to be here. You know, can you come and get me? Mm. You know, I was because it, I was almost hysterical. My mother was on the other phone. She was great at things like that, picking up the phone and listening in and, and reading your diary. She was everywhere doing everything. And anyway, she comes downstairs and she says to me, I don't want you to ever call that woman again. And me, being obedient, being Christian, I took it as that was her last word and she had the right to have the last words. Mm. She was my mother. She was an authority. And so I took it. Maybe that's why now, like I said, now authority doesn't like, you got to do a lot more than make me feel, you know, that you have some authority over mm. me. But, but then I was a young girl. Mm. You can't spell obedient without B it seems. Yeah, that's, that's true. And it's, um, it was, it, it helped me, it grounded me, but I had to learn everything. I, I mean, I went from Christian music to country. That was my, country. my sort of middle wow. ground, you know, Crystal Gale, don't it make my brown eyes blue, mm. you know? And so I went through that phase of country music. And then I guess I came to like soft rock. And then eventually now I'm like, you know, I can handle the top 40. Um, <laughs> but honestly, it was really for me uh, um, a journey. Mm -hmm. And it was a journey that, like I said, was harrowing. It was scary at points. It was um, defeating at points. And I was depressed at points uh, because you know, I had no family and, and my sister had tried. I have an older sister who really tried to keep us all together. She um, had three girls. She lived outside the family 
but she's sort of the the like the lightning rod that everybody sort of gathers mm. around and she's always been like that and so for her and my mother loved her so for her um she had a whole different understanding of family and togetherness and i never got that because of facebook and all these social media i am in touch with a lot of my family but still for me it's uh, it's that i'm different mm-hmm. you know and i i will always be different and um and they will always be criminal <laughs> mostly not all mm. but um yeah we don't share a lot in common and i and i it's only grown this um gap in our understanding of what the world means and what you can be in the world that you have agency that's why i became a communication coach mm. as well because i felt like I started teaching English in Germany and I felt like um the, you can know the language and still not be communicating and so communication became my passion and 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 that's why I moved to that as an adult and and I did some uh counseling teen counseling of like troubled teens in, in college mm-hmm. um so I so I had that strain too of of counselor and teacher in me. Like that's always been in me. And so I guess I counseled myself when I had no one else to counsel me. Uh, very often, and I made it. Uh, very often be for for children that go through that, that that are forced to kind of parent themselves. It, it's very common to become, I suppose hyper parent you know really you can become really hard and you're really strict on yourself um you know very critical of yourself because you know this is what you're meant this is how you're meant to be doing it and because you're 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 that parent yourself but you're the parent with the mindset of a child and has has that been the case for yourself you know would you have found that through the years that you'd be quite hard on yourself with that parenting of yourself it was the case of that I was very critical of myself and I I struggled really hard with anxiety disorder even though I made it through college and um, depression and I was extremely hard on myself and I have to say when I, t- I somewhere in my 30s I actually had my own nervous breakdown and I was diagnosed with schizophrenia and I was hospitalized. I had met my, my husband at that point and he was very supportive of me, but I didn't know what this mental issue was. And it, and it was the culmination of this childhood and this fracture of who am I? Who am I really? Mm. You know, and um, and I actually sort of had a split. This inner city B that had this rough childhood and sort of made it up through the dirt. And then as I graduated from college and started sort of seeing some successes, um, having better relationships, who was this woman that I was becoming. And when I got married, I honestly, because I had this riff in my mind, this split almost, 
I wanted to retire. I wanted to um, just, it's like I'm married. I will keep the house. I will stay inside. And, and I, I think Germany, ironically, Germany is what actually brought me out of that because I'm an African American woman mm-hmm. and almost a monoculture. Mm-hmm. You know, most people look white, mm-hmm. even if they're from Russia or wherever. Mm-hmm they appear white. So I'm an obvious minority. And the fact that I was trying to fit in or trying to hide and I couldn't. And like I said, so I had this um, cognitive dissonance where you're, you can't match in your mind what you want in your life. I, I saw a sign that said, why are you trying to fit in when you were born to stand out? Mm. And that was the divining rod for me because it was like, that's it. That's the problem. I'm trying to fit in and I don't, I never have. And I wrote a book called Girl, You Ain't Crazy, where I touch on some of this, um, the PTSD, the schizophrenia, the trying to understand myself. And uh, that's a self-help for your funny bone book that I wrote by myself. Mm. And yeah, and I slowly came out of that shell uh, with Toastmasters, which is a speaking organization. Mm. So I became a public speaker. And then when I got away from Toastmasters, it's because they they started a new program. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with my speaking career? And I decided, hey, I want to be a comedian. I've always, I won some awards in Toastmasters for uh, humorous speaking. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to become a, a, a stand-up. I'm going to become a, a humorous motivational speaker. And and I did. And I and slowly but surely, I studied intrapersonal con- um, communication, how we talk to ourselves. Mm. And then with... Um, people like Lisa Nichols, um, Kyle Cease, these sort of transformational speakers. I listened to them and, and I found my way. I found my way and I was able to get that unity of mindfulness, you know, and it comes with, um, you know, stopping to, meditate to, to ground yourself in your past is not you it's it's not a a life sentence it's only a you know a a section of your story and i i really try to get that over and that's why i work so hard on the book and getting that out in 2020 Mm. with the with the schizophrenia um be at that point i mean how how severe is it is i mean is there hallucinations are you are you hearing voices are you aware of what you're going through what what did that period of life look like? Well, schizophrenia, how it showed itself up in me is it's a was a slow progress to where first I was just aware that people were speaking and I always thought they were speaking about me. Mm, mm. You know, and then slowly I thought people were chasing me. And so I would come home and say to my to my partner, you know, there's people out there trying to get me. And he didn't know what I was talking about. And I had a great friend and she was in um, uh, Denver, but she was my best friend. 
And um, like I said, uh, when I was 13, I had gone into a girl's school, which also had therapy for girls. It was all girl. Sort of if you saw that movie, was it Girl Interrupted? Mm-hmm. Where they put you, they were always, they were putting all the teen girls into these institutions, <laughs> these mental institutions for, you know, having a thought basically. But anyway, um, so I had that best friend from that and I was talking to her on the phone and the people in the TV were talking to me and I was telling her this and she said, I'm going to call an ambulance for you. So she was in Denver, Colorado. I was in Heidelberg, Germany, and she called an, an ambulance that came to the house and they knocked on the door. So that's even more surreal. Mm. <laughs> and so, but she got them there for me. Wow. And then I was hospitalized. And then once, once I got my medication, it was like night and day. I was hospitalized for um, 20 days, I believe. And, and even the other people who suffered from other things, depression or um, whatever they were suffering from would say, you seem so normal. Well, with medication, I am normal, you know, but it's that chemical imbalance in my brain that I can't control without medication. Typically, be schizophrenia, you know, the first signs tend to develop in adolescence as we hit in our teenage years and our brain is changing, you know, for the greatest amount since we were ever since we were born. And this is why a lot of mental mental illnesses can come on around adolescence because there's so much going on in our brains. Was anything, was there any kind of early signs in adolescence or because as you were emancipated, do you think those signs would have been missed because you were on your own? Do you think, was there any manifestations of it, do you think, when when you were younger? Well, I was by myself then and I believe that I had the, anxiety disorder, which could be the onset of the schizophrenia, the anxiety Mm. that people are talking about you, that people... So I I really felt persecuted for most of my teen years and inadequate. I, you know, I felt that I was unworthy of life for some reason. And uh, like I said, and that was based on this PTSD that I suffered from the abuse of, of my mother, you know, the, the verbal abuse and all of that physical abuse. And yeah, so I, I was like this ticking bomb basically that didn't have a detonator. I was by myself. I wasn't really doing anything but going to work and coming home. When I was in college, I uh, would, like I said, was working for these, these teens who like myself were in uh, foster care. Uh, and so I was busy with them. And so I wasn't really concentrating on myself. So it was more for me, maybe I was a ticking bomb at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I met my husband and my life started going well. And then once I, it was basically, cause I've always had basically a Cinderella complex, you know, that one day my prince would come, my prince did come. And I was, it was like, um, like I said, this uh, disparity between this horrible person that I am and how can I live this good life? How can I have this good life when, you know, I'm this horrible inner city child 
who never, who didn't have much love. I mean, I did have love from my foster family. Um, yeah. So when I tried to, it, again, it was the cognitive dissonance that happened when, whenever you try to go up another level and people maybe know this when, um, whenever you're trying to do something that's more than you've done before, or you meet someone who's different from someone you've ever met mm. before, uh, you may think, how am I worthy of this? Or I'm not smart enough to do this. Let's say you get a job that is makes more money than you've ever made before or gives you more, um, you know, responsibility. Um, there's um, imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, where I, I, I'm an imposter in my own life. And so, again, it was like a ticking bomb. And when you add all this stuff on top of it, yeah, then it was like breaking out with chicken pox. I was just totally, you know, and it was akin to trying to, to, to squeeze an onion to get lemonade. And that's what I was. I was this onion and, and, it, uh, and I may, it made no sense to me that I could have a nice life. Mm-hmm. Like even, yeah, like I could struggle. And I was okay with the struggle. But when I didn't have to struggle anymore, when people were saying, you're smart enough to do this, you're smart enough to manage, you know, a a communication um, channel, you're smart enough to to lead a group or, or, or manage a team. Then I was like, why do they think that? And again, like I said, then you then you have that imposter syndrome on top of everything else. And it didn't, what I had to do is I had to become clear and I became clear by, of course, therapy. I mean, I shouldn't, I didn't just do it all by myself. I had to have therapy to help me see this, to reflect to me that this is, um, all of this was like a bad mirror that I had and that mirror needed to be cleaned off, you know, and those things were not me. Uh, those were things that happened to me or those were places that people had taken me to or I had been, but they did not define me. Mm-hmm. So uh, once I did that, then, like I said, my passion for communication came through my passion for wanting to help others. And that's why I wanted to become a, a motivational humorist to, you know, to help others as well. So, and I'm writing now my second book, but it's a, um, it's a humorous memoir about living in a small town in Germany as an African-American woman. What, what is that like me? I mean, that's, that's gotta be some culture change. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm calling it a hundred days in Strudelbach <laughs> and I have about 30 essays and, it's, you know, one of the jokes I like to tell on, on stage is that, uh, like the one fall, the people had built like a great fire outside, you know, and I had never seen these big fires that you build mm. and they came knocking on our door oh, and, and with these torches <laughs> and fire and they're well, like, as on, an African American, that would have been something else. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. So there I am in the middle of these white people carrying torches going into the forest. <laughs> I was like, this might not turn out well for me. <laughs> but of course it did. But but yeah, there is there's all sorts of um you know, like when I came in 2005, um, I asked for a coffee to go. They did not have coffee to go at that point in 2005. I, and when they finally did, I, now even they have coffee to go, but still sometimes they won't have a lid. They'll be like, we ran out of lids. <laughs> you know, so then you're supposed to like ride in the car with yeah. your coffee you know, it's it's just a trip to the doctor's mm -hmm. office waiting to happen. And people will say, German friends of mine will say to me, I, I never drink coffee on the road. Like, they don't do it. Mm. It's not their culture. Yeah. So, I, had, I actually had a fr friend of mine had a, had a Mercedes car. And um, I was in the car one day and I was like, this is a Mercedes. There's no cup holders. He's like, no, no. It's like, if you're driving, you're driving. You know, you're not you're not meant to be drinking coffee if you're driving. If you're driving, you're driving. So he had to buy one. He had to buy a, like a it's it sat into the the car vent or something like that. Was just different, just different. <laughs> exactly. And what I love about Germany is this sense of oh oh they they have a German set, a sentence like order above all. Like they have this model that they say Ordnung is all is or something, and, and I do like it. There's a part of me that likes order, you know, although there's also a part of me that wants to rebel mm -hmm. against it, you know, and, and here they actually have traffic police who will, you can get fined, you can get a ticket for um, crossing the street, jaywalking, mm -hmm. what we call jaywalking, mm -hmm. walking against the light. And so my husband and certain people, many people in they will not step out into the street <laughs> against the light. You know, and me, I'm like, that's just a suggestion. Yeah, that's that's very Irish. We're the same here. You can always spot the spot the tourists in Dublin because they're <laughs> the ones waiting for the for the light to cross. All yeah. the Irish people are just jaywalking in front of the cops, going, How's it going? All right. <laughs> it's 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 just not yeah, a thing. Yeah, you can get you can get a fine here for driving drunk on a bicycle. Mm. Like they are very, mm. very um, aware of those kind of issues. So, There's been lots of yeah, lots of periods of transition. I'm hearing be as as we talk. You've got those first twelve years. You've got the next three years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with with your birth mother. We've had some uh, African-American uh, guests on the podcast before. I I've always kind of held the belief personally as, as someone that was hugely influenced by African-American culture, as, um, as someone that grew up listening to rap that influenced my whole life, black comedians. To be black in America is a traumatic experience in and of itself uh, with, with the inherent racism and um, everything that goes along within that culture. I mean, that's that's one thing within the States. It's a big culture shock to move from the States to Europe. <laughs> we, we, we joke in Europe that Americans think Europe is just one big country. I'm going to Europe. What part? <laughs> you know, there's different parts of Europe. <laughs> but, you know, you go from the first 12 years, you get the next three years, you get the years in between, mm -hmm. and then you, you get to Germany. I mean, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of change and that's a lot of 
upheaval, I would imagine, at, at that point. And it's one thing to move to a country, you know, another country. That's difficult in and of itself. To be an African-American woman in a in a small German town, that's that's an entirely different experience. I mean, it, it, it was crazy when I first came. And like I said, I was struggling with schizophrenia and and having that diagnosis and standing out and not wanting to stand out. So when you already have dealt with an anxiety disorder for most of your life, mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is stand out anywhere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But when I, so for me being an African American in America, I, I, I honestly didn't really feel it because I, I, you know, it was the generation before me, like I was born in 64. So basically, and I was in Indiana. So even though in the neighborhood, and then remember, I was in a, in a basically, well, I was in a Christian middle-class neighborhood in Indianapolis. So I didn't know about like what was happening in the inner city Mm. and the conflicts that were going Mm. on with the cops and all that. So all of that was new to me. I had no idea and yeah and so the biggest issue i had with was with other black people Mm. because i sounded white and so i didn't fit in anywhere Mm. i just didn't i never fit in and people would always when i was growing up people would say things like girl you crazy you crazy girl it's it's an african-american uh euphemism for everything and yeah. (laughs) yeah and i and like I said, I internalized that to the point where I would tell people, please don't call me crazy. Please don't do that. And yeah, so when I got to Germany and it was just me, I was like, oh, I thought I would stay in the house. Like, I'll just stay in the house. Um, and then I was going out and we were doing things. And I, like I said, I had help with um, therapy and I don't know. And then I just had that light bulb moment, which was funny because I, like I said, I started going to Toastmasters and I was, I was most of the time I was the only black woman. Now, fast forward to 2023. And I find now if, if I see another black person, I'm like, I'm not the only one, you know? So now I even got a little bit of attitude about not being the only one. We're in my territory now. <laughs> I blame yeah, the trail. Exactly. Yeah, it was Highlander. There could be only one. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's not the, that's not um, my issue. And I honestly haven't had here sort of the issue with me sort of as, like as a black woman, I haven't, that usually is not people's issue with me. Their issue with me is more that I'm an American oh, yeah, yeah. and as an American, <laughs> I'm entitled, you know, I, I, so yeah, I think everything revolves around me, you know, zero so, issue with you being black, hundred percent issue with you just being American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't like your kind yeah, here. Yeah. Well, there was a war, you know, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. kind of uh, <laughs> did some damage. <laughs> uh, yeah. With all of that, then, you, you took yourself in, in later life, by the sounds of it, uh, into stand-up comedy. T- tell us about that. Yes. So after I started doing speaking with Toastmasters, like I said, and then I was thinking, where can I use my speaking skills? And 
I like to drink. I like to be out at night, you know, and I'm getting older. So I need a reason to be out. Like before you can, like you can be out in the club in when the you're club, in your girl. 20s and 30s. Yeah. But if you're in the club and you're 50, people are like, uh, okay. So if I'm there standing on stage, people get yeah. it. So then it's Permission okay. to be out late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and I love it. I love, like I said, I talk about this, uh, this duality of being African-American from the inner city, living in Germany and and what that has, you know, and the different um, sort of growing pains Germany has had with me mm. and I have had with it. What have your you know, growing so, pains, what have your issues been as, as you lived there, Bing? One of my issues has just been, oh my, the one thing that, that I hit up, I would hit up against so often, not so much anymore, but I used to was that there's no customization. Like, especially in restaurants, like you are all the same. Everybody gets a tomato. Everybody gets an olive in their salad. No customization. You cannot tell us you do not want onions. You cannot tell us anything. We will bring it and you will eat it. And to the point, my husband, one time we were early on when I first got to Germany and we were at a cocktail bar and I said, oh, I want, can I have three olives in this dirty mm. martini? And the woman said, three olives? I think it, maybe it had one in it. And it, the woman said, three olives? Like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, what? Do you have to open another can? Just put two more olives in the damn cup, you know? And my husband was like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. So it's, so I'm like, I don't get this. Yeah, that's, that, but that, it's that's so just funny pure because... American, that's just pure American. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're the you Irish, we're working paying... the German, and it's like, just just take what's on the menu. It's like, oh, that, thanks very yeah, much. Just that's great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and then the exactly. American's like, no, can I get that in the side? And then I want with the... It's like... And everyone's like, oh, Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And you just, you just imagine it's like, I can, I can buy it. So I want to have it my way. Yeah. And, and probably Burger King is what, you know, <laughs> what brought us way. down to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They fed us that for so long. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so fast forward about two years ago, a friend came to Germany and I took her to a schnitzel restaurant and she was like, Oh, can I not have the fries and can I have the salad? And I was like, shh, 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 no, don't, don't try to change anything. <laughs> I'm looking and the, um, you know, and the chef is coming and he's, Oh, shit, man. And he's throwing his fists around. I'm like, Oh no, they're going to kill us in the restaurant. They do not like you to no. change no. anything. Although now it's getting in a little bit better. I, I'm still a little wary whenever I say, mm, can, you, can you do this for me? Yeah, still. Hmm, yeah. When you got there, did you, did you speak German? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to imagine if you're, you know, you have that, that, that schizoid break, you're hospitalized. I mean, you're speaking German while you're in there. What, what's, what's, what was that like? I could speak German a little because I took German in uh, college and I also was in the National Guard in college. And so I had been to Heidelberg, Germany before. Okay. So so I knew a little bit about the language. Mm. I knew a little bit about the, the area because my husband's from this area as well. 
And when I had the break, when I had the second schizophrenic episode here in Germany, my husband had to take me to a hospital. And I was nearly hysterical because they locked me in a room. And that's been my fear. Like that is one of my biggest fears is being locked away somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And no one knows, you know, it's like uh, somewhere no one can hear you scream. And so that was, that was really traumatic for me. But almost everyone speaks English. I've, I've rarely had the issue. And if they don't speak English, I mean, I can speak enough German to, to get my, you know, to get my will across. (laughs) (laughs) Was stand up something you're always interested in, B? Or was it just something that, you know, you got a taste for as you did the Toastmasters? I got a taste for comedy. I, I honestly, before I would say I really, I've always been positive. I've always had uh, an optimistic outlook. And I think that is what saved me from so many negative things is the fact that I can't sort of go too low. I always bounce up. And comedy was it was for me a sense of rebellion. Like I forget someone said that if you, if you get someone laughing, their mouth is open and maybe you can stick something um, <laughs> interesting. In Please clarify there me before uh, people start taking that advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, you know, a, a piece of um, information yeah. or you can help someone. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. So the, and that's how I took comedy is I came to it as I want to, to, you know, to lift people up and to um, sort of share this idea that we're all in it together, that we're all like now, like I said, I'm, I'm 50. And so I'm dealing with the fact that, you know, depending on the light, I look either 30 or 180, you know, and so I'm dealing with going through that point in life and I want to help anyone else who's there mm. as well. Yeah. Any, any, any of our regular listeners of the podcast will know I'm an absolute massive stand-up comedy fan. And I, I take that into the approach to mental health, you know, very much of the mind. If you, if you can mock it, you can manage it, you know, and it's, it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't have a hold over us when we can laugh at it. Exactly. It's it's an entirely different experience. I remember my former co-host Peter. I think he he mentioned it on the on the episodes before of you know when I when I started joking. You know we we had a guest on before who had made multiple suicide attempts. I was like, look, it's not for you. You know you, you've tried. You can't do it. Leave leave it at that. Like take take the signs. And he was like, oh, so he was kind of shocked. You know, oh, we can laugh about mental health. I was like, it's the one thing we need to laugh about. That's that's exactly what we need to be laughing about. Is is these issues of gone? Yeah, look these are serious issues but it doesn't mean we can't you know come at it from a different angle uh, where it's all doom and gloom it's like no no let's 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 joke about this let's let's bring that in because people are going to be more receptive to it exactly exactly it brings like you just said it, it helps us to to navigate it helps us to think different you know it if you can laugh about it, then that means that you, you're seeing it from another perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can listen to someone else's um, 
listen to someone else's story and see it from another perspective, then that builds a bridge to that other person, you know. And, and I tell people because I belong to a cultural communication, a, um, a cultural intercultural communication. So speaking across cultures and sometimes people will say, well, you can't laugh um, it, when it's hard to share a joke across cultures. And, and I say, you know, it's not always about telling a joke. Sometimes it's just smiling at someone. Sometimes it's just saying we are in the same situation, you know, and that there builds trust and it builds communication. So we can learn a lot from humor. And I, I don't think we've really, um, digging deep enough into humor. Um, like you said, like people like you, me, others who have dealt with things or who deal with other people need to help them to, to, um, you know, to grasp that creativity and humor are hand in hand. Yeah. A part of it is being Irish. You know, we, we don't talk about things. We make a joke out of everything. You know, we, we can't have, we oh, can't okay. have the depths. That's why we're all alcoholics because, because it can't fucking deal with anything. So we all just get, uh. we all just get drunk and then all the stuff comes out. So typically at an Irish wedding uh. or a funeral, that's when, that's when all the, all the stuff from the past gets dragged up. Otherwise we just, we just make <laughs> fun of it. It's like, ah, we won't, we won't be dealing with that. That's, that's too serious. <laughs> let's, let's not go there. <laughs> but it is, it is a healthy, you know, well, it can be a healthy coping strategy. It can also be a, Exactly. Uh, it can be anything. Can be. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Anything is can be a double edged sword. Mm. You know, mm. you have to know why you're using it and and what because you know th this aggressive humor, this humor to put other people down. Yeah, yeah. There's also humor that is about collaboration. You know, about unity, mm. and, and that's the kind of humor I'm about. Like I, I'm never trying to put anyone else down and i um yeah and i think if if you're trying to create a connection with someone and say look we both are in this situation what can we do or or isn't this great or doesn't this suck then you're building um you know you're building that communication and that trust yeah. and and humor does it like that like as soon as you laugh with someone you feel a connection yep, absolutely yeah i'd wholeheartedly agree and it's, and it's a huge part of my practice uh of bringing mm -hmm. humor in my clients and actually a lot of a lot of online online reviews uh from former clients mention you know alan's use of humor and i was like well that's, mm -hmm. that, that's great you know that's because once you can make people laugh as you say you can put people at ease when you can put people at ease you can develop a relationship when you can develop a relationship you can make progress so it's it's it, it needs to be at the at the forefront there um that's on the that's on the funny side as as we look back b you know as you look back over your experience of of life what would you say has been the biggest mental health challenge that that you would have faced in your life and what do you think retrospectively helped you to get through it I, it would be the schizophrenia. That was the biggest health threat I had because, like I said, it was so, um, it came up, upon me so subtly and I didn't recognize the uh, signs. I didn't even know there were signs or, or what was there, it was. Was there any particular it, catalyst, B? Was there one particular thing that just kind of tipped it over the edge or was it a kind of slow buildup or a combination of things? 
Exactly. It was slow. Like I said, it was this idea. So I moved from anxiety, feeling like people are talking about me to really thinking people are talking about me, then thinking people are following mm. me and then um, feeling, um, you know, sort of hunted. And this, so it, it, it really did just subtly grow into, into it. And then uh, in Germany, what happened was uh, honestly, my husband, he, he was asking me, how long are you going to be on that medication? Because I was taking it every day. It's a medicine you have to take every mm. day. And he said, and he was just asking, how long are you going to be on this medication? And then me, I thought, okay, I'll stop taking it. I, you know, I hadn't had an episode. And my husband and I have been together for 23 years almost now. So I hadn't had an episode. And, and then again, it slowly begins to where you think you hear people talking about you. And, and now, if I, if now I would pick up that, that warning mm. sign and I would quickly take my medication. Mm. But then, like I said, I, I didn't know that I could spiral into the same place that I had spiraled into in, in, in the U.S. And then to be in Germany and to spiral like that was scary because they locked me into a room. Or not, not lock me into a room. They lock me into a corridor or a, a hall of, with other people who were dealing with other things. And, and that was the scariest moment for me was to be, like I said, in the middle of nowhere, locked in a unit with other people who are having issues. And not knowing, you know, my family wasn't there. Nobody knew where I was. My husband knew where I was, but no one else did. I mean, I could use the phone. It wasn't, I mean, it, so, but there was, there was that feeling. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't in a straight jacket tied mm. down or anything. Um, but there was for me that feeling initially, like initially. And of course, once I calmed down, they were like, you know, go ahead, call somebody, you know. And so I called my, um, my boss. Who, who is a lovely woman. She's American. Um, she has her own company here in Germany for business English trainers. I think now they do other courses. Um, and she supported me. She came to my house and like brought me clothes and things like that because my husband was traveling, you know, because he, he had to travel for work. So that was my fear. Like somehow I'm going to end up here locked away and no one will know what happened to me you know and that was my lowest point i have to say that was my lowest point. was it the medication then that, that helped you get through it or what 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 do you think helped well the medication brings you back up to some sort of baseline where you you're no longer hearing voices you know you're um you're you're just able to deal with um, conversation and with rapport with other people. And so once I was, my medication had stabilized and I no longer heard voices and um, I could sit with people and I was okay. Well, then I was ready to get out. And they were saying to my husband something like, you know, three or four weeks or let's wait and see. And I was like, no, now, 
I want to get out because I was, like I said, so scared that I'd end up locked away forever. And luckily, I mean, my husband, and like I said, it's, it's, it's my husband who follows the rules. So if he, if they told him that I needed to stay there for five weeks, he would have left me there for five weeks, but I could go home for like weekends and things like that. So I went home and I brought all my stuff with me. And I was like, I am staying home, you know, and then, and then of course we, we spoke to the doctor and I, and I got um, a therapist and everything to support me. But I couldn't stay in that place. That was just no. Mm. And that is my biggest fear. Is, that's always, I think, going to be my biggest fear is to somehow be alone and no one know. you know, especially when you're living in a country that's not your, your yeah. homeland. Yeah. From there, then, me things turned around you went into the you did the toastmasters you do the the training the, the communication training etc can you tell us a little bit about that side of things yeah so as i said i became interested i went in 2005 i was teaching business english and i and i have been teaching business english but then it occurred to me that a lot of communication goes on without the words, you know, with body language, with tone. And what is it that you want to communicate mm. and to be clear on your message? And so I did training on that, on intercultural communication. And uh, I was able to to turn my my dream of having my own company into a reality. And I called it B. Be communication. And I work off this hive model of, of, you know, of honest, um, insightful, valuable engagement that that's what you want to have with others. And I developed, um, a six point model for that. Um, and that's what I try to take people through is to help them get strategic about whatever communication they need to have, whether it's looking for a, a new position, how are you coming across, what are the words you're using, or dealing with a teenager or dealing with wanting to get a promotion at work, and what do you need to be putting across for that to happen. And so that's what I do now, uh, intrapersonal communication, how do you talk to yourself mm -hmm. and how to have better communication with yourself as well as uh, helping people um, with putting together their presentation or um, being able to present well in front of others. Mm. And, and where can people find you then on, online, B? Where can people find out more about the, this high model, about you, about your stand-up, about everything that you do? Where, where can people find you? The one place I found where you can find me the easiest is it's called Linktree. It's link tr, um, and then I think slash b Ballman. So link uh, dot e e I believe, and then b Ballman. So and there you will see everything that I'm involved with, and I'd love to hear from people. Right. So just for so please sign up for my newsletter there for our, for our listeners. Then that's b e e b a u m a n n. 
Yes. And that's at Linktree, uh, like uh, LinkedIn, but it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E, uh, Linktree, and then B. Bowman. Excellent. And you can find me there or AnnabelleBauman.com. That's my website. So before we leave, the last words of wisdom would be just a quick check in and a plug on the social media and to let you know what's coming up on our next episode. So if you haven't already, check out the social media, folks. You know where it is. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, username across the board at STMH Podcast. If you haven't already, please hit like, subscribe, uh, drop a comment down below on all of the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel handle is also at STMH Podcast. So all of the social media across the board is at STMH Podcast. That's a really easy thing to remember, and it's even easier when it's the website. So the website is stmhpodcast.com. If you'd like to come on and tell your story, if you've got some feedback, if there's uh, anything you'd like to get in contact with me about, please feel free to do that. You can do that by email as well, and that is hello at stmhpodcast.com. So coming up on the next episode, I am talking to Suzanne Yatim Aslam. Suzanne has wrote her book. She's going to tell us all about that next week, and she's here to talk about postpartum depression uh she's extremely honest i know from working with female clients that her parents she's going to talk about stuff that we don't we don't usually talk about we're scared you're afraid to say the things that that are in your mind but suzanne uh, as a testament to her bravery she talks about all of those things and actually i share my own experience around uh depression after the birth of a child i know we haven't covered it as a topic before but you're definitely going to want to check that episode out. That's going to be out in two weeks. So you know what it is, folks. I'm going to be back. Same bad time, same bad channel. And in the meantime, look after yourself. Look after each other. Be every guest that comes on, we ask them to share some words of wisdom, some life learnings that they've taken so far in life, or a motto or a creed that they live by, or anything like that. You've lived a life. You've lived many lives by the, by the sounds of it. Is is there anything you'd like to you'd like to share with our listeners that you've taken from this life so far? Yes, I would say if there's something to watch out for, it's the three things that usually get us into trouble is our communications, the things we communicate, our observations, the things we think we're seeing, and our behavior. So to, to look at those things in yourself and to decide for yourself where you want to go once you have that honest look at yourself. And that's what I mean by hive honest, insightful, valuable engagement. And you can do that for yourself. <laughs>